And it's the mash. It's the monster mm. mash. That the guy was monster from mash. Either Malden or Stoneham. It was a graveyard smash. He was from Malden. It's my favorite holiday. Mm. The whole fucking year, Laura. I wait. Though I have to say, I don't know if it's my age. I don't know if I'm just in the dumps. I don't know if it's the colonoscopy face. Maybe the kids' ages too. No. No. I'll be that weirdo that has no kids left and I'll still be decorating. Oh, but please I just don't do that. I haven't been as involved this year as I usually am, mm-hmm. but I am decorating tomorrow. I have okay, most good. of my decorations out, but the outside, and I did a spider theme this year. Oh. And I did get one of our fellow friends to do a ghost theme this year who doesn't Thank decorate God. at all for her kids. I'm like, come she on. She has little kids. Yeah. So I told her, I said, you got to do this when the kids are at school. Mm-hmm. You're going to put all your decorations out so when they get off the bus, mm-hmm. they're going to lose their shit mm-hmm. when they see all those decorations. Would, I would have the bloody hand. My whole yes. back door is all glass, like full glass door, and I would put the bloody handprints on it. They would mm-hmm. love it. At one time, I had a wick of witch face, and it lit up. Oh. So her eyes, like you could see. It would scare me when I would come home from work. I'm like, Jesus Christ. And then I'm like, Jesus, Lars, it's the mask. But like it was like so freaking creepier than the red. Well, Last year, I added the red lights in the windows. Oh. So all the, the whole windows houses. light up in mm. red. Oh, fucking love it, Pluto. Fucking yeah. love it. He's I, staring right at me with his weird... He wants something. 80s hairdo he's got going on. It's been all right. Hard. So this week, mm-hmm. A, I'm Nicole. I'm Laura. And this is Scissors and Scrubs. <laughs> Hi. Just Hi. With that. <laughs> FYI, you listen to Scissors and Scrubs. Um, I'm doing out-of-body experiences, and you are doing... The Harvard Morgue case. Oh, that is a good one. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do out of body first? Because I think Harvard was. Mm. You want to do Harvard? I don't care. Whatever you want to do. Is it yours long or short? It's like. It's pretty long. Well, I do have a testimonial of a doctor who has had an out of body experience. What do you want to do? I'll do mine first. All right. <clears throat> Harvard Morgue, it is, kids. Let's do the Harvard Morgue. I got this from Harvard Yard. Oh, my Boston. So it says, I got bostonglobe.com, boston.com, C. Oh, it's a Boston show. CNBCTV18.com and then NewYorkTimes.com. Just a little side note, Laura. Do you know where I'm going right after Halloween this year? Scotland. And what's in Scotland? My favorite episode. Oh, the Birkin hair. Birkin hair. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go see who I can't remember. You're going to go in the chest? Are they going to put you in the chest? I'm hoping I'm going to see a good tea chest. Maybe they'll let see, you go in it. We're going to the College of Surgeons where the oh, fucking skeleton's they put the, hanging. Mm. I'm also going to look for a skin door. Supposedly they have a skin door. So, oh yeah, I'm going to see fucking Don't. Birkin hair. Okay. Boom! Oh, How excited Probably by yourself. Everybody else is going to stay well, back Well, I did one. convince the girls to get on a good ghost tour, so we okay. have one the first night. So I'm very Gust. excited! Birkin hair. Okay, Gust so anyway. Harvard Morgue. It's the Harvard Morgue case. So, in June, this year... Bum, bum, bum. Seven people were indicted by a federal grand jury. Seven? In, seven. I thought it was only two of them. Um, indicted by a federal grand jury in Pennsylvania on charges of conspiracy and interstate stolen goods. Doesn't sound so awful. No, right? it doesn't. No. Sounds the like stolen taken, goods? Like, some cotton balls. Yeah. Human remains. Oh. Human remains, including heads, brains, skin, oh. and bones. Mm-hmm. Skin and what? Bones. Bones. Cedric Lodge, age 55 was hired by the Harvard Medical School morgue in 1995 to manage the morgue and was so responsible... he's been there like 30 years. Yeah. And was responsible for preparing and accepting donors' bodies, coordinating embalming, overseeing the storage and movement of cadavers, and preparing remains for the transportation to the crematory. I'm not going to lie, but I wouldn't mind that job. You're sick. I know. Okay. Um, from 2018 to 2022, Mr. Lodge... 
stole parts from cadavers that had been donated to the medical school for research through the anatomical gift program. Mr. Lodge and his wife, Denise Lodge, age 63, from New Hampshire, um, then shipped the stolen remains well, that to... it all. She's from New Hampshire. Yeah. They both live up there. Um, to They shipped them to, quote unquote, collectors. Like Katrina McLean, 44, of Salem, Massachusetts, who owns a store called Cat's Creepy Creations in Peabody, you know, Mass. Like Salem's right next door to me. You know I'm fucking going there now. Her store is in Peabody. It's not in Salem. We're in Peabody. Um, and Joshua Taylor, age 46, of West Lawn, Pennsylvania, who is also a collector. Of what? Bones. Um, Mr. Lodge also let Katrina McLean and Joshua Taylor and a few others into the morgue to pick out what parts they wanted. That's so disturbing. Wrong. It's wrong. It's so disturbing on so many levels. Yeah. In October 2020, Katrina McLean bought two dissected faces for $200 from Mr. Lodge. For 200 bucks, that's it? Mm-hmm. This money's like nothing. Katrina McLean stored and sold remains at Cat's Creepy Creations. On Instagram, the store, store advertises, quote, creepy dolls, oddities, and bone art, end quote. In summer 2021, Katrina shipped human skin to another defendant, Mr. Jeremy... What does it say? Jeremy... Uh, I don't know if that's... Not important. To another defendant, age 41, <laughs> of Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, to tan the skin to create leather. Human leather. And what was she doing with it? I don't know. She just wanted human leather. Maybe she pants. fucking dolls out of this? Not sure. From September 2018 to July 2021, Joshua Taylor transferred over $37,000 to Mrs. Lodge. That's a lot of money. In electronic payments for body parts stolen by Mr. Lodge. Joshua Taylor sent Mrs. Lodge a payment for $1,000 with a memo that said, you know, like on Venmo, a memo that said, quote, head number seven, end quote. And another payment. I'm speechless. Yeah. Another payment for $200 labeled brains with like eight eyes in it. Another member of this ring was indicted separately. Her name is Candace Chapman Scott, and she worked in a mortuary in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was um, indicted for mail fraud, wire fraud, and interstate transportation of stolen property. That's how they get you, is the wire fraud. They will oh, get mail? you. The mail's federal. Oh, yeah. As That's soon a, as you do something mail the mail, you're in. screwed. Yeah. Um, Tax evasion. They get you on the stupid yeah. shit. She would also sell stolen body parts to Jeremy Polly who would then sell them to others, including Matthew Lampy, 52, of East Bethel, Minnesota, who is the seventh person who was indicted. So all these people I've named have been indicted. Ms. Scott actually stole the corpse of two stillborn babies that were sup- supposed to be cremated in return to their families. That's fucking disturbing. Mm-hmm. Why would um, you do that? I, people are sick. Mr. Lodge was fired from Harvard Clearly. in May uh, before the in- charges were brought. So what's the fascination with body parts and stealing bodies? So grave robbing has been a part of human history for science. hair. Yeah. For science, exploration, or just sick reasons. Money. It's money. It's always been money. Some methods are more acceptable than others, though. So, for instance, archaeologists have been digging up graves for True. centuries. True death. And still are. This is accepted by most because it's for science and research. 
but it is still grave digging. You, we uncover the pharaohs and right, but they're also respectfully doing it. But they are still digging you're right. up. You're absolutely- I'm not saying no, you're I right. get it. They're learning history and stuff. It is still grave digging. Mm-hmm. Um, not acceptable examples are the grave robbing that occurred, so medical schools could get cadavers yes. before yes. donation programs existed. They did this especially in the United States, in black cemeteries. Mm-hmm. So they went to people they thought as less than. I told you, when we do the we do the grave digging episode, mm-hmm. they were there was like a riot of yeah. bodies of the slaves. Right, yeah, remember they a were like... A riot. Yeah. Um, in the late 1700s in um, Massachusetts, dissection of a human body was limited by state law, so faculty members and students at Harvard traveled to graveyards to get dead bodies to use. Harvard student Joseph Warren... Nicole, <gasps> relative, mm. found the Spunka Club. Spunka, <laughs> with the purpose of Spunka sounds completely something else. Well, that's what it was called. Um, with the purpose of grave robbing for medical research, the men that participated were called resurrectionists, and they were countrywide. We talk a whole episode on the resurrectionists. Mm-hmm. Um, Massachusetts enacted the Act to protect the sep- sepulchers of the dead in 1815, which outlawed the disturbance of buried people. Because of the Spunker Club. So they put this lot because of the Spunker Club. Right. Because they were, sh- you know, sh- shyster in bodies. Yeah. So they just, um, so they still needed bodies for the medical school. So they just went to the New York guys and were like, oh, can you mm-hmm. still dig up bodies? We'll get buy them from you. So they got them from the New York grave robbers. Um, over time, more laws were passed to provide easier access to get cadavers for medical students so they wouldn't be digging up graves. Mm-hmm. The first was the... Anatomy Act of 1831, which allowed med students to use unclaimed bodies deemed indigent, insane, or in prison. So if like a prisoner died or someone at a mental um, hospital died, they could use their bodies for research. Um, When organ transplantation was achieved, all 50 states adopted the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act of 1968, allowing people to donate their bodies to science. We have another episode just on donating bodies to science. Some modern grave robbing. An archaeologist researcher, James Davidson, um, says that black body grave robbing in the Dallas area continued into the early 1900s. Wow. So they were still doing this after, right. you know, well after they, it was really known to be bad. Um, 60,000 skeletons were being sold in Calcutta in the 1980s, but that practice was outlawed when it was discovered that many of the bodies were children's bodies. Oh, that's so they were like, more mm, disturbing. You're taking up bodies from the graveyard? Okay. Oh, wait, they're children, so we're going to stop right. this. Um, there are little to no reports of grave robbing in the U.S. present day, but there is a large underground, quote, red oh, hold on. <laughs> market, quote, red market for body pots. An example, John Bones on TikTok. <laughs> That's his name. That's his handle on TikTok. Don't go to his page. Don't give him any notoriety. Don't give him any credit. The guy's actual name is John Ferry. He's a modern bone enthusiast. He has 500,000 followers where he showcases his collection of human bones that were, quote, legally obtained. Why, though? Why? Because he's a bone enthusiast, Nicole. You can go look at a fucking skeleton and see a bone. He loves bones. You don't even need a real one. You can just look at a fucking fake one. Yep. In case you were um, concerned, Facebook, Instagram, Etsy, and eBay have policies banning the sales of body pots. Thank God. Or human remains. Oh, jeez. Yeah. However, How these, sad we have to put that out yeah. there. However, these people will post their goods on one site 
So they'll say, oh, I have these bones on Facebook. And then on Instagram, like, but they'll maybe say, like, I have these bones. They're called dogs. I don't know. <laughs> no, like, pictures. Yeah. And then on Instagram, they'll post the thing, but they won't say they have these bones. They'll say, I have these pictures and sell their pictures. Do you know, like, they'll call it a different name on yeah. a different site, but yeah. they're really buying the bones. Um, So they'll post them on one site and complete the sale on the other site because that's not banned. There is no. People are ingenious how they get around oh, yeah. shit. There is no federal law forbidding the transfer or possession of human remains unless the remains are Native American. So this underground trade skirts around like random state laws like Massachusetts might have a law, but New Hampshire doesn't have it. Like, so they just Mm -hmm. skirt around state laws. There is no federal law that you cannot do this. Mm -hmm. Um, This scandal could impact the Harvard scandal could impact the number of donations to science at Harvard for quite a while. Um, other schools have adopted some safety features that maybe Harvard would like to look into, um, like RFID chipping the bodies. So they oh, put sad. it's disgusting. So they put a little chip, like a um, X-rayable chip into the or a scannable mm-hmm. chip into the bodies. So when they scan it, they know okay, every pot's here, right, and nothing's been taken. Or they track the weight of the cadaver and the final weight at cremation. So they know that everything was in that, like this, it should be I'm literally speechless that we have to do this. Yep. Um, And that's just about it on the Harvard. Speechless. It's disgusting and speechless is all I'm going to say. It's a gift. Like people are donating their bodies to be used from science to discover things. To teach doctors the anatomy of a body, to teach nurses. Like it's a, it really is a gift. People are selfless doing that. And then someone goes and, you know, ruins it. No one's going to say, hey, oh, yeah, ma, donate your body because they might ship your head to friggin' Minnesota. Right. right. No like, one's going to want to do that. And it's sad that in this day and age, I mean, people have been sealing bodies, like you said, yeah. be, you know, forever. It's and it's sad. not Harvard. Harvard had no idea. No one else in the morgue knew this was, was part of it. On. It's this man. At all. It was this man. He does not work there. It is safe to donate your body to science there. I'm sure they're probably now more like. What a hit to Harvard, though. Oh, yeah. It's, I'm sure now, though, they're like insane about it. Did they say what he got fired from, even though he wasn't? I, well, the charges came in June, so I'm sure they knew. It was going They on. were investigating it, obviously. Well, mm-hmm. comma, mm-hmm. I'm discussing out-of-body experiences. Can't wait. You know, you go under anesthesia, you have cardiac arrest on the table, you float to the ceiling, you look down on your body and you're like, oh, I can see this one. She's wearing a blue shirt. Yeah, so, so weird. There's many, 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 many articles on this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's a little hard to put all this shit together. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. And I'm just telling you a very, I'm skimming the top. I'm skimming the cream off <laughs> the milk. You're a skimmer. All right. I'm skimming. Yeah. So. You really want to get into this. Anesthesia has written records on it. Doctors have written records. A bunch of people. Mm-hmm. We're just going to go a little bit. We're going to just dabble. Okay. We're going to Dab. dabble in out-of-body experience. I got this from Very Well Mind. An inside look at near-death experiences. Okay. What is a near-death experience? Some people call them NDEs. Other people call them OBEs, out-of-body experience. Oh, out-of-body. So mm-hmm. it's the feeling of bright lights and leaving their body. Being able to see the hospital or the operating rooms, recalling accurate details, flashbacks, encounters. These are all out-of-body experiences Mm -hmm. or NDEs, near-death experiences. Many people discount them as silly or imaginary, but those who experience them have chillingly accurate uh, discounts, details. Mm -hmm. 
And some have changed their lives completely because of what they have seen, felt, or encountered Hmm. while they were out of their bodies. There are theories of why they they occur. There's theory that there's loss of O2 that maybe um, troubles with anesthesia has caused a neurochemical response. Mm -hmm. Um, But with advances in medical technology, you'd think that would be past us. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we have monitors that tell you how deep deep you are and stuff. Yeah. Um, the people that they bring back from the brink of death would they recount these auto body experiences. Um, some say maybe anesthesia awareness. Mm-hmm. The effects about a hundred anesthesia awareness affects about a thousand patients per year. It occurs when a patient is under anesthesia but can still hear bits of conversation mm-hmm. you'll hear people like suing doctors because they heard them say something negative about them just as they were drifting off to sleep mm-hmm. um a four-year study in the university of south south hampton looked at 2000 cardiac arrest patients of the about 200 2060 enrolled 330 survived their cardiac arrest wow. of the 330 140 were able to complete memories of the event. Jesus Christ. 40% of those described some awareness before they resuscitated them. Suggesting many people are aware while they're actually in cardiac arrest. Can you fathom? Because I know, I mean, we've been through many situations working a patient. I can't imagine what they're like. To I sometimes, I know I'm weird. Sometimes I think like, are they looking at me right now? Like, are they on the scene watching me, watching what we're doing? Well, I think, and we also talk to them. I think a yeah. little bit like it's weird, but you're like, it's okay, you know. Yeah. Like, we, I'm doing this too I'm now. Doing, I'm going to roll yeah, you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I talk to them. Forty eight percent experienced recollections in relation to death that were not like common near death experiences, like being dragged through water. Nine mm. percent um, had classic near-death experiences, and two percent had out-of-body experiences, including hearing and seeing events. Another study at George Washington University looked at patients being removed from life support, and they had them attached to EEG machines. Mm-hmm. They found that there was a spike in neural activity right at or near the time of death, even though there was a drop in the blood pressure and an overall brain activity. Right as they're going to get the EG spikes. So weird. Researchers see a spike at the time when you would expect the brain to die due to lack of blood flow. Mm -hmm. Soon after brain activity stops and patients were pronounced dead. Researchers speculate that a blood flow slows down and O2 runs out. Cells are no longer able to maintain their charge. So this is why they think the the spike is. That activity, so when they can't maintain their charge, activity ripples through the brain and creates a seizure. The theory is that the seizure happens in the memory areas of a person's brain. This could explain vivid memories and recollections if you would actually bring that person back from the brink of death. So right as that's happening, if you resuscitate them, they're going to have these vivid memories. But nobody knows. Mm -hmm. So when I was researching in this, they kept talking about the tennis shoe incident, the tennis shoe incident, the tennis shoe incident. So I Google the fucking tennis shoe incident Mm. out of body experience. Well, here it is. Okay. April 1977. Mm. A migrant worker is visiting the area of Yakima, Washington, Maria. She has suffered a severe heart attack at night. She is taken to Harborview Medical Center. It is at night to a place she has never been. Mm -hmm. Okay. Kimberly Clark is a social worker who is assigned to her at the moment she's admitted to the CCU. Now, while she's there, she is 
hooked up to monitors. She's hooked up to IVs. She can't leave her bed. So mm-hmm. it's not like she's out looking at the window, walking around the hospital. Mm-hmm. She is in bed mm-hmm. the whole fucking time she's in this hospital. So um, she is talking with Maria a couple of days after this incident happens when she was, she, I have to start over here. She's admitted to the C- CU. Kimberly's following her. Maria has another cardiac arrest oh. and is like, out. Mm-hmm. A cardiac arrest. They bring her back. Mm-hmm. A couple of days after that, Kimberly's talking to her. Because she was in the hospital, what happened? She's resuscitated quickly. She's stabilized. Now Kimberly's talking mm-hmm. to her. And Kim goes to see Maria and she's like really fucking distressed. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these out-of-body experiences, and you're going to hear it when I tell you the story, they're discounted. Nobody's oh, yeah, yeah, great, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Maria states that when the doctors... And the RNs are working on her. She finds herself, she's floated to the ceiling and she's looking down at them. She's having an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. She describes the chart screaming, paper streaming from the Eat. machines, which, why would she have seen right. this? Um, she is hovering and she's watching all this, but then she's distracted by something outside of the ER. And she's like, just like that, you're outside the ER. And she is outside the building like she thought herself there. And she's describing the entrance to the ER the road that leads to the ER, the woods around the ER, oh the God. curb that's further down the ER. And they're like, there's no way she would have known this because she came in at nighttime and she's never been here. Right. Um, she also describes like, she's like, I'm looking at the ER and then boom, she's outside the third floor window. And while she's outside the third floor window, which is the opposite side wing that she is currently in, she's describing on the ledge outside of the third floor window, a, a sneaker. That's on the window. And she's describing that it's worn in the toe. The shoelaces are tucked under the heel. She's describing a very detailed account of this tennis shoe. Um, And she says to Kim, can you go find the tennis shoe? Kim's like, yeah, I guess I'll go look for the fucking tennis shoe across the other wing of the thing. Nothing else to do. Nothing else to do. So she walks over to the wing that she's talking about. She starts looking at the third floor windows. She sees the tennis shoe. My God. But the only way you could describe what this tennis shoe looked like the way Marie described it, you would have to be outside the building on the Puget Sound side of the building. And up, up three Floating stories. up three, because the angle, Marie's got her head pressed against the window. She can see the shoe, but she can't see it's one. She can't see the tip. Mm. But she had somebody retrieve the shoe and it was exactly as Maria had described. Oh my God. Um, so this incident becomes known as the tennis shoe near dust experience. Mm. And it becomes um, what everybody is using as proof of out-of-body experiences. I really don't have much tangible information right. to give you on these because it's just people's accounts of yeah. what they experienced. So I'm going to read you this literally verbatim because it's really, it was a good story about this doctor who himself had an out-of-body experience oh. and fucking changed his whole life to it. All right. Let me make sure I have the right guy first. Mike, give me one second. You know what's weird is like, I mean, it's not an out-of-body experience, but when people are like, oh, there's a death crawl. And you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Someone death crawls. I've seen people. It's They're literally, like they are crawling. They're moving their arms and legs. They are out. They are mm-hmm. done. They are dying. And they are moving their arms and legs that they, like they're crawling out of something. It is. And then they die. Mm-hmm. When you see the death crawl, they are dying. It's literally like. I mean, I'm going to, it's like this soul is trying to leave their body. Like, it's unbelievable. I had a cousin who had, God bless him, he was in the Iraq, first Iraq war. He got horrible cancer, very young, mm-hmm. and he's dying from cancer. Mm-hmm. He is dying from cancer. He's out of it. Mm-hmm. 
he kept saying to me, do you see the angels at the end of my bed? Mm -hmm. Do you see the wings? Do you mm -hmm. see how beautiful they are? Do you see my uncle? He's sitting right there. Like my mother was like when I was, my father was dying. He's telling me his kept yelling at his mom yeah. to stop saying the rosaries. And she's like, pa, there's nobody there. And he's like, no, she's sitting right there. She's saying the rosaries. Countless, countless, yeah. countless accounts of people seeing loved ones waiting yeah. for them on the other side, you yeah. know? But the de the death crawl and I'm always like, creepy. Oh, okay, we're done because yeah. they're yeah they always die. Once yeah. you see that death crawl, they and it's like you're like I think that's like your soul like crawling out or, or something. Just it's, the agitation of like I'm leaving. But it's literally. It. But you know, it's like it's some something is happening yeah. and they it's always die me. when you see that. I'm not gonna lie. Crawl. At fifty, I keep thinking like, oh my god, what's it gonna be like when I die? I know. So this particular story, I'm gonna read it to you as is because it it's it's a good story. He has actually written a book. In the articles from the Daily Mail by Dr. Rajiv Parti, its doctor had an out-of-body experience during surgery. Okay. So he writes, by all indications, the patient on the oper operating room table was dead. His heart had been stopped, his body drained of blood, and he was no longer capable of breathing on his own. He was, in fact, in suspended animation, which is usually what they do in cardiac procedures. Mm -hmm. Through a surgical procedure that replaces the blood with this, he's, he's discussing uh, cardiac procedure. The patient survives. He's in the recovery room. He wakes up. He's got a big smile on his face. What? He's like, I was watching you guys in the operating room, he says to me, to this doctor. Yeah. I was out of my body, floating around the ceiling. I saw you standing at the head of the table. I saw the surgeon sewing the patch on my artery, and I saw the nurse. Everything he said was uncannily accurate, but could he have really witnessed it all? No, of course not. How could he see anything when his heart wasn't beating, his head was packed in ice, and his brain had stopped functioning? He wasn't the first person of, my, person of mine to have reported strange events. Over the course of my 25-year career, I heard people claim to have seen deceased friends during a cardiac arrest or lights at the end of tunnels or people made a light. I always thought such stories were nonsense. So I had, I said I'd return to talk to him later, but I never did. He just brushes this guy off. Of course. By the next day, he had been moved to another department, so he was no longer technically in my charge. In time, after all his money, that's how materialistic mm -hmm. I was. Within a few days, he'd just become another story. In many ways, his wife, Aparna, and I had a charmed life. She ran her own dental practice, and I was making a very good living, not only as an anesthetist, but also as the co-founder of a private pain clinic. Oh, nice. Soon, we traded our small house for a larger one, and then a mansion. Our cars went oh. from average Fords and Toyotas to supercars, including a Porsche and a Hummer. Nice. I know shit. I was even planning on buying a Ferrari. My goal was bigger everything. House, cars, art collection, and bank accounts. Mm -hmm. Naturally, I'd made sure my three children had the finest possible education, and I had my eldest son, ugh, it's an Indian name, okay. Ragab's life all mapped out. He was going to follow in my footsteps and become a doctor. Mm -hmm. The only problem was that he wasn't interested in medicine, and his grades reflected that. I had no sympathy. I shouted at him a lot, punishing him with my anger. Like my father and grandfather before me, my theory of child raising was, a bent nail must be straightened with a hammer. Otherwise, I felt my life was near perfect. <laughs> Then in 2008, at the age of 51, I found out I had prostate cancer. Mm. I was furious with God. What had I done to deserve this? Still, I booked an operation with one of the best prostate surgeons in the country and assumed that all would be well. I can almost guarantee no complications, the surgeon told me, but something went drastically wrong and I was left with an incredibly painful scar tissue and other debilitating side effects. Ew. Uh, there were five more operations over the next two years Jeez. to try to repair the damage, but none of them really worked. Then one evening, just two weeks after my fifth operation, Ooh. I suddenly fell faint and my temperature was 105. That's yeah. fucking bad. That's real bad. I knew instantly what was happening despite two courses of strong antibiotics. An infection was spreading rapidly in my abdomen. And if I didn't help, 
get help fast, I'd soon be dead from septic shock. Yes, no would. fucking shit. My wife's tears streaming down her face managed to bundle me into her BMW and drive me to the hospital where I was quickly loaded onto a trolley, also known as a gurney, also known as a stretcher. Mm-hmm. I remember emerging from a fog to see a surgeon looming off me. He held his hands like praying mantis, a sign, you know, like when you're going to scrub oh, it, when you're a sign that they were scrubbing for surgery and ready to be gloved. Next time I surfaced, I was in the operating theater. I managed to tell the anesthetist that I, what I did for a living and ask him what he was about to give me. Propofol and fentanyl, he said. In other words, the usual, exactly what I would have selected. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Asked the surgeon. He waved his gloved hand, gloved hand at the anesthetist. And you can re- you can tell this is English the way it's spelled. Yeah. And I was asleep before I could answer. Was it over there? Was the surgery already over? I felt myself zooming straight up as if, as if in a lift. It was the same feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you're rocketing to the 20th floor of a skyscraper. Ooh, weird. Slowly, my consciousness began to return, and I could see the ceiling approaching, its glossy surface slowly getting closer. Then I looked down and saw my own abdomen, now with several incisions. I heard the anesthetist make an off-color joke. I won't repeat it, but everyone in the operating room laughed, including me. But where was I? For a few minutes, I froze with fright, worried that whatever was holding me on the ceiling would suddenly let me drop. Eventually, though, I relaxed, watching in rapt amazement at the surgeons and nurses worked on my body. Is that really me? Or is this really me, I wondered? How can I be in both places at once? Suddenly, I became aware of a shift in my perspective as my field of vision expanded. I was still in the operating room, but at the same time, I could see my mother and sister sitting on our sofa in our family home, thousands of miles away in New Delhi, where I'd grown up. The scene was vivid and detailed. My sister was wearing blue jeans and a red sweater, and my mother a green sari and a green sweater. What should I make for dinner, my sister asked. It's cold outside, said my mother. We should make hot soup. Lentils sound good. I was so focused on them that the sudden sound of instruments clanking in the operating room gave me a start. Turning my head to the left, I found I could still see and hear the scene below me. This guy's a mess. He's lucky to be here. Give me more swabs, said the surgeon to a nurse. Again, you can tell it's England. Yeah. It's really, he's saying operating theater every time. Right. I was now seriously frightened what was going on. Would my untethered consciousness ever get back into my body, or was I destined to roam through an eternity as a spirit? Was I dead? I felt like an astronaut who had left his spacesuit, only to find that the suit was unnecessary to begin with. With rising panic, I looked back and forth at the two scenes that both started to fade like fast-setting sun. Everything went dark. I was relieved. I I was returning to my body, I thought. Then came a jolt of pure fear. To my right, I heard screams of pain and anguish. I was drawn in as if on moving pavement to the edge of a flaming canyon. Smoke filled my nostril, and it was with a sickening odor of burning flesh. Mm. I knew then I was on the lip of hell. I tried to turn away, but each time I took a step back, an unseen force moved me forward. A voice spoke to me telepathically. You have led a materialistic and selfish life, it said. I knew that was true and felt ashamed. Over the years, I had lost empathy for my patients. Mm -hmm. Standing on the rim of hell, I remembered a woman who'd come to my clinic for treatment for chronic arthritis. She was in considerable pain, but that wasn't the reason why she was weeping. I need to talk to you, doctor, she said to me. My husband's dying of lung cancer, and I don't know what to do. I'd love to talk to you, I said, writing out a prescription for painkillers and sleeping pills, but I have several patients waiting. Mm. I was like a robot. I trained myself to be blunt with my emotions, and worse, I had trained myself to think only of myself. As the smoke billowed and the burning souls screamed around me, I thought of my possessions and how meaningless they were. Why did I have all these things? Why did I need a home so big that when we were in different parts of the house, we had to communicate through our iPhones? 
I felt steeped in shame, but I knew my chance to change was gone at any moment now. I'd be pulled into the pit of fire to burn for eternity. This seemed no way out, but I prayed for one anyway. My God, give me another chance. Please give me another chance. Almost in an instant, I did get my second chance. In the form of the last person I ever expected to see, it was my father. I recognized him immediately, though he looked at least 30 years younger than he did when he died. He took my hand in his and led me away from the edge of hell as if I was still a little boy. Then, putting his arm around me, my father tried to comfort me, and it was the first time I could remember him touching me affectionately. To be honest, I almost shrank back. Even at the age of 53, I was still afraid that my father was going to beat me just as he had so many times in my childhood. Mm. But just then, I had a vivid flashback of the day he found out I bunked off school. I'm assuming that means skipped school. Yeah. And gave me a savage beating with a cricket bat. Oosh. Suddenly, I was seeing it all from his perspective. His own dreams of bettering himself had come to nothing, so he beat me because he couldn't bear to see me wasting my life. Mm -hmm. What I'd discovered in my father's mind wasn't hatred, but fear. He had been frightened that I wouldn't take advantage of my chances and go on to university. His tyranny, I finally understood, was born of love. And now this. My father, my cruel, despotic father, was spiritually rescuing me from hell. I looked into his eyes, and my heart had melted with love. No words came from his mouth, but for the first time I learned from him that his own father had abused him just as he had abused me. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Anger, my father told me, isn't usually about an event. It's passed on from father to son. If you know that, you can stop it. You can choose not to be angry. Simply love is the most important thing in the universe. I asked myself, would I ever return to the land of the living? If I did... I would have to focus on love. I would have to break the cycle of anger in my family. The scenery was changing. I noticed now that we walked straight into a tunnel. Incre and this is what everybody says. Incredibly, it was soon teeming with people I knew of my ancestors reaching out hands of welcome. I recognized my grandfather who gave me a look of sheer joy. Love is the most important thing there is, he told me. And they're both he and my father simply faded away. I was now halfway through the tunnel, and that's when I had a life review in which I re-experienced in detail all the good things that had ever happened in my childhood, from being given sweets by my sisters to the warm feeling of being swathed in my mother's love. Wow. Again, a tele telepathic message came from nowhere. The simple moments are the most important. All moments are memories and lessons. They all build the person you are. I was nearing the end of the tunnel now, where light shone more brightly than a thousand suns, and I could feel it pulling me weightlessly toward towards it, but I felt no fear. Before I could reach the light, however, two angelic forms emerged into the tunnel, exuding powerful energy as they hovered above me, and they introduced themselves as my guardians, the archangels Michael and Raphael. Now, this guy's Hindu, and That's he's seeing weird. angels, okay? Yeah. Well, now, I am Hindu, so it was only later that I learned that Raphael is the angel of healers, and Michael is the protector of people and the angel who opens doors. Both archangels had a human shape, yet they shimmered with light and had a thick translucence. Michael had a blue hue and long hair, and Raphael was greenish and wore a cap. Hmm. You think it was a scally cap? Maybe. Maybe. In a moment, I was lifted by them and guided towards the blazing light before us. As we approached, I find myself high above a green meadow, peppered with rose bushes. Bushes. <laughs> Just the sweet smell of the grass, roses, made me almost delirious with pleasure. We traveled on to a higher plane, and then a higher one still, until I was surrounded by a landscape of clear light. Raphael explained that at the highest level, you are surrounded by a powerful energy that consists of pure love and intelligence, an underlying fabric of everything in the universe. Enlightenment comes, added Michael, when a person realizes that love is everywhere and is the only thing that matters. Yet most people don't realize this until they leave the earth. With that, they took me by the arms and we moved rapidly up towards a being of light, a silver blue form that showed no sign of being male or female. 
When it engulfed me with its blue light, I felt as if I were being wrapped in a blanket of pure love. I am one with the universe, I thought. The being started communicating telepathically. You need to look at your life one more time, it said. It's important to reflect on changes that you need to make. It went on to tell me that I was destined to become a healer of souls, healing, helping people with problems such as addiction, depression, and chronic pain. Hmm. I would no longer be an anesthetist. Instead, I'd become a practitioner of spiritual medicine, of consciousness-based healing. I don't know how long I stayed with the being, but my exit when it happened was sudden and rapid as I fell into a white fog. For the first time, my eyes began to hurt, so I closed them. Oops, sorry. And when I opened them, I was in the recovery room. My heart was beating hard and my lungs pumping double time. How do you feel, said the anesthetist still in the scrubs. That was a rough one, he said, referring to my surgery. I must have looked stunned because when I didn't respond, he leaned closer. Are you all right? He said, I said, I saw you during my surgery. I left my body and I watched you from the ceiling. He's like, interesting. Hmm. Like he was really disinterested. No, really. I watched you administer the the anesthetic and I heard you tell a joke. And he repeats the risque joke. And the anesthetist blushes. I must not have given you enough anesthesia, he said, looking hard at my file in order to avoid meeting my gaze. I wasn't about to be fobbed off as one professional to another, and I was determined to tell him exactly what I had seen. So I described going to India, where I'd seen my mother and sister, and traveling to the edge of hell. I had just started on the next part when he glanced at his watch and flipped the file shut, and he's like, okay, really good. See ya. I'll come back later to hear about it. Nice. It's like I never saw him again. When the surgeon came in to check on me, I started recounting his experience all over again. And this time he at least got to the tunnel. And at that point, he reached for his phone, which wasn't ringing. Then he excused himself, saying he had an important call to make. So that was the end of that story. What he says is after recovering, he resigned from his job as chief anesthetist at Bakersfield Hospital in California. Got rid of all of his cars, sold his mansion, and he moved to a house half its size. His wife supported all his decisions. She kept the family afloat while he established a new practice to heal people through meditation and other alternative methods. Realizing he'd placed his ego above his eldest boy's happiness, he encouraged his son, then a third-year medical student, to find a career he preferred. His son is now trained to be a computer programmer and enjoys a close relationship with the father he once feared. I found that an incredibly moving story. Yeah. Um, if you go on the internet, there's a thousand stories like that mm-hmm. of people who have had these near-death experiences, the white light, the tunnel, the feeling of being pulled back to their bodies, mm-hmm. recounting what people were wearing, what people saw. It's something. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. It's spooky. Um, and I'll tell you, we have this thing where somebody comes in and says, I, I think I'm going to die. We canceled the surgery. I... My first death in the OA, I was a scrub tech and it was a liver transplant. And the lady said she came in to the room and we used to do the lines awake. Mm-hmm. And um, like the so the patient was still awake and she came in and I remember she said, I just feel like I'm going to die. And they're like, no, no, you get a new liver, blah, blah, blah. And they kept going. And the whole time they put in the lines and they were saying, she was saying, I'm not asleep. I'm not asleep. Just know I'm not asleep. And they were like, no, we know you're supposed to be awake, blah, 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 blah. And she was petrified. And we put her to sleep and she bled the second we cut her skin until the second she died. She didn't stop bleeding. And I was like, she knew. Mm. And I just felt awful because her last hour or was two. was terrified. She was terrified because she just, I'm not asleep. I'm not, I'll never forget her saying that. And I was like, she knew and we mm-hmm. shouldn't have done it, but you have a liver. So you're going to do it because you don't get organs a lot. And it was, they know, they, they know, know and they're going to go. And we've had a couple of cases come in. I've had a couple of cases come in of people coming in who you think, like, you know, they have a serious 
they have a serious problem going on and you're helping them and you're talking to them. And to think that mine was, I, I go out of my way to make mm-hmm. them laugh, to comfort them because mine was the last face they saw. Yeah. I was the last person they talked to yeah. before they went to sleep. Right. And they never woke up. Right. Because even if they make it out of the surgery, they'll go to the ICU, still intubated, still and medicated. something happens up there. They're not going to be awake. No. And I had one person, I was just, I spent, I don't know, three hours talking to this person. Mm. And I was like, oh, and I knew the surgeon. He did a great job. He got them in. And I came in two nights later and the charge nurse is like, um, that person didn't make it. I was like, what? She's like, he didn't make it. Person, you know, had right. a stroke and passed away. Mm-hmm. I was devastated because yeah. I went home thinking this He's person's fine. fine. Yeah. And they didn't make it. I was literally like, your eyes are beautiful. Like, right. I love your accent. Anything to make them smile. Right. And I, I have to comfort myself knowing. That's you did that. Well, I that's that also them. part of the job. And I think we, when we orient people, we tell them that, like, you could be the last. You go talk to that person. There's eight thousand people doing mm-hmm. anesthesia. There's eight thousand people doing this. You go stand there, hold their hand, and mm-hmm. talk to them. And if that's all you scared, do, that's the most important part. It's you do. the most important. That's all they're focusing on. Mm-hmm. Really, is like, oh, someone's talking to me. They're holding my hand, mm-hmm. even if they're not really answering you. You're distracting them, kind of. You're being kind to them. You're being human to them. Like they have somebody comforting yep. them. Yeah. In their last moments. So like that's all you can do. Yeah. But, so, well, mm-hmm. on that note, happy Halloween. It was the mash. It was the monster mash. The monster mash. I mean, all good things come out of Malden, pretty much, is what the... What? (laughs) Well, I moved to Stoneham. Well, it wasn't from Revere, I can tell you that. No Revere person would come over that stupid ass song. I knew it was somewhere (laughs) I lived. Malden is the guy who sings... Um, spirit in the sky. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Mike's friend, Rob. That song. I love that song. Makes him so angry. Why? I don't know. I love I that song. Know. I mean, I speak about like, a body of experiences. Right. He's talking about having hair in the sky. And I'm, I think like, it's like a catchy song. Everybody yeah. knows that song, right, Brian? And Rob, if it comes, he gets visibly. The guitar in that I love. And Rob's boom, a guitar boom, player. Boom, boom, Hates boom. it. Oh, Hates it's it. one of my favorite songs. Can't talk to him about it. Yeah, Malden people. No, I, he's at Stoneham. Rob hates it. He's from Stoneham. The next time I see Rob, I'm going to start singing Spirit in the Sky. Also, the guy that played in a band. I always want to say Eddie Vetta. Extreme? Extreme. Extreme. They're He's Medford. from Malden. Aren't they from Medford? Malden. He lived so, behind. He lived behind Hawthorne Street. And my one dear friend Katie lived. One of them's a Medford boy. Because, mm. you mm. know, when I worked at the Medellin Mall selling jeans for uh-huh. a living, they used to walk through the mall at night. Medellin Mall? Yeah. Thank we, you very much. We used to go there, too. And we were from Malden. Yeah. So just what else? When I right worked there, the right next to Orange right Julius and down the street from Chess King. <sighs> okay. Great mall. Just saying. All right. Have a wonderful Halloween. I have no idea what we're doing for Thanksgiving. Please send us some emails because we love hearing from you guys. Um, And that's it. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Like, subscribe, rate, and review the Scissors and Scrubs podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scissors and Scrubs. And email us any of your stories or thoughts to scissorsandscrubs at gmail.com.